My name is Alan. People call me just Alan, and I will be hosting interviews with interesting people on RadioKingston.org. This is my first podcast, and I am so very pleased to have Kathy Nolan as my first guest. Not only is she a pediatrician and bioethicist, but she is also an Ulster County legislator. She's a very, very special and unique woman, and she's been in our area for quite a while. But I want to tell you why I like Kathy Nolan so much. It was many years ago that my wife and partner, Juliet, the mother of our children, uh, we had a store in Woodstock, New York, called Just Allen. And one day, a couple came into my store, and they had just dropped their newborn baby. And they were almost hysterical with grief, not knowing what to do. And Kathy Nolan used to come into my store once in a while for a chai latte. And it just so happens she walked out of the store just a few moments before these, this couple walked in. And they were in panic. Well, I knew Kathy had some medical experience. And I ran down the block and said, Kathy, some people just came in my store. They dropped their baby. They're panicking. They're so worried about the baby. She didn't even take a second to think about turning around and coming back with me and examining that young baby and putting the parents at ease. It was just the most remarkable event, and that kind of connected me with Kathy forever. Anyway, Kathy, it's great to have you on, and I'd like to... First, just go over some of your qualifications and some of your history, if you don't mind. Sure. It's great to be here with you, and congratulations on uh, uh, starting in on this new venture with this podcast. I'm Um, excited. Yeah, it's really wonderful. And thanks for bringing up that magical story. Uh, Your shop that I was in was a magic shop. And what was relevant for that family is that I am trained as a pediatrician. And uh, I took that work into looking at ethical issues in medicine and science. That's the bioethicist part. So that was a large part of my work before I came to the Catskills. Let's talk about that for a moment before you came to the Catskills. Uh, As a young woman, did you go to a a regular grade school in a high school or? uh, Yes, my my, um, mother... Uh, was raising four children in uh, Tennessee, in rural Tennessee. You're from Tennessee originally? Well, I was born in Kansas, um, and my parents were military, so we moved around quite a bit. Um, But after a divorce, we ended up in Tennessee. And my mother felt very strongly that we should go to public schools. Um, She's an amazing, wise woman, and felt that we would learn whatever we needed to learn at any school, um, from the academic side, but she thought we should know about people and our society and felt that uh, going to a private school might not give us a full picture of what most people in our country deal with day to day. That's very interesting because Juliet and I also went around looking at private schools and we ended up, uh, I, I went to public education and we felt it was good for the kids to have a public education. There'll be some kids they don't like and some kids they do like and some teachers they like and don't like and they'll get a cross section of the reality of the world. 
It was exactly that. And um, in the area where I lived in Tennessee, at the time I went to high school, which would have been about 1969 or 1970, the schools had still not been integrated. So though there was Brown v. Board of Education in 1955, the lag time for things actually changing in a small town in Tennessee was quite protracted. So my freshman year in high school, the previously all-black high school closed, and all of those students came to my high school. And it was really important for me to see the reactions of different people to that happening. Um, uh, I was very happy. Um, I knew we were going to get several good basketball players for our girls' basketball team. Um, But it was challenging for many of the white students and for many of the black students. And I saw that people's attitudes, um, even if they wanted to be welcoming, was hard if they just didn't know how another culture operated and hadn't had much experience with dealing with people that were different. Is that where you started recognizing the differences in people and uh, that some people cared more to uh, bring other peoples, other different kinds of peoples into their community? Is It was in high school? or Yeah, I would say that was the place where it really became very apparent to me, although we, my family was Roman Catholic and we were living in Bible Belt Baptist territory in Tennessee. So I'd already experienced that people would act differently just based on a characteristic that to me didn't seem very relevant, you know, where we happened to go to church on Sunday. Uh, There were very few Jewish families in the community. So in a high school of about 1,300 students, there were um, five Jewish students, five Catholic students, and two of the Catholic students were myself and my sister. Oh, that's very interesting. And then uh, when you decided actually uh, to become a medical student, what, what influenced you to take you to that place? Well, I was interested in science all through my growing up years, and my mother was a nurse. I was interested in many different subjects. I thought I might um, go into engineering, but my guidance counselor told me there'd be no jobs in that. Um, <laughs> not very uh, uh, forward-looking uh, prediction on that. Um, was that because uh, you were a woman and they felt that women didn't fit into that category? At the time, I would have never guessed that, but looking back, I wonder, um, because I was good in math, I was good in science, and I had aptitudes that seemed to line up in a way that engineering might have made sense. But I was more of an outgoing person, a people person, than maybe she thought most engineers were. So maybe it was based on wanting something better for me than engineering. Or maybe it was just that she didn't identify, you know, she didn't think that women were going to succeed in that realm. Or she literally thought that it was a a field that was going to dry up in a few years, which of course didn't happen. But um, I went into my college years with the idea that I might go into theology. I had a a really strong spiritual drive, and I went to a school that had a very strong theology program. When I 
uh, arrived there, I found that the philosophers were asking what I thought were even more interesting questions. So I actually majored in philosophy and kept up my science classes so that I could apply to medical school, which I did. And But went to medical school with the idea that I might do something with this new field that was emerging called bioethics, where you looked at the philosophical underpinnings of medicine and the role of medicine and science in society. How did you select uh, pediatrics? I had a very good guidance on that. One of my clinical instructors in medical school said, uh, choose the specialty uh, that has the people you would most like to be with. And I thought, oh, well, I really like being around these pediatricians. And so I followed that, and it turned out to be very good advice for me because I did enjoy being around people who love children, um, who were a little more playful. And at that time, pediatrics was in the process of becoming more academically rigorous so I felt satisfied on that level as well. I see in uh, your resume that you also uh, went for a law degree. Uh, can you explain what, in, what was involved with that? I was interested in the realm of bioethics, and I knew that law and lawyers often determined what people thought they could do in respect to whether to turn off a respirator on a small baby or whether to pursue genetic engineering. And I liked the idea of um, being in a legal realm. I thought being a lawyer or a judge sounded like a, a great thing. So as an uh, Aquarius, I couldn't decide between medical school and law school, so I applied to both. And I was accepted into a program at Duke where they combined the two degrees for a six-year program. And I had also gotten accepted to Yale Medical School and was... Uh, drawn to going to Yale if I could. So I contacted the law school and asked them if they would also allow a program of combining the two. They had something that was close enough, and they said, sure. And so they uh, created a program for me to be able to do both law and medicine. Do you have a degree in law? I do. I was admitted into the JD program, the regular legal program, um, but I... Um, married during that time, and uh, in order to go with my husband where he was going to work, I left the JD program and took a one-year degree, which is a Master's of Studies in Law. It's a more academically oriented degree that was designed for journalists or politicians. I was the first medical doctor to combine the MD and the MSL. Oh, that's very interesting. Do you, do you find that that uh, particular degree works for you now as a legislator? Yes, yes, a a absolutely. And it's worked for me prior to that as well. I have to watch it because I don't have the in-depth knowledge of somebody who went ahead and completed the degree and I didn't take the bar exam, so I, I'm not a lawyer, and I, I need to be careful not to get myself into trouble. But I think it helps me know what questions to ask, and at the policy level, it's very useful. I see also that uh, you've done a lot of work for the environmental uh, areas of uh, Ulster County. Uh, you were involved uh, all along the corridor with the rail trail and uh, the Bel Air project. Maybe you could uh, tell us what your interest in environmental um, proceedings and uh, with the Bel Air catch us up to the Bel Air project. 
project where it's at and what your feelings are to these projects, the rail trail and Bel Air? I think that my work on the environment is directly comes directly from my spirituality. I um, experience the world as my body. You know, this is this is the only earth that's the water, it's the air that it that is around us is in us, and this is scientifically and medically we know this. You know, the, our body is made up of water. So it was very easy for me um, when moving up to this area to a, and living in a Zen monastery to want to protect the area in which I live. And that, that was what started my interest in the, in the Bel Air project. The project was proposed to be something very, very large and involved blasting into a mountain. Excuse me for a moment. Let's just catch people up on where the Bel Air project is located and how it started and how many years it took for each process. So uh, some of our people may not be caught up with that. Sure. So the Bel Air Ski Center is in High Mount um, at the western edge of Ulster County. And the ski center was created to provide an economic... uh, boost to the region during the winter months when tourism was traditionally not um, as strong. The uh, ski center has served families and has been a a wonderful place. And almost a little over 20 years ago, uh, developer Dean Gitter uh, began to buy up properties and soon thereafter announced that he wanted to build a huge uh, three golf course, multiple hotel project on those slopes uh, right next to the forever wild protected lands of the forest preserve. And that announcement uh, horrified some of the people living near Bel Air, and they reached out to me and asked if I would help them. Um, They were aware that I had been involved in environmental and community matters, and they felt that what was happening was something very big and corporate uh, coming in and was going to run them over if the we didn't band together. Well, how, how has the banding together uh, helped reduce down that project? Uh, and do you feel it's reduced down to where it's viable uh, in, in the Bel Air area? The project started out, as I said, uh, very huge and on both sides of the ski center. In 2005, 2006, the um, legal efforts that uh, our community brought against that version of the project resulted in an administrative law judge saying, no, you can't go forward with that without going through this very long process of adjudication and you might not be able to go forward at all. So the developers and some of the environmental groups um, and eventually the governor, at that time uh, Governor Spitzer, met and decided they'd uh, reduce the resort by half in terms of the land area and completely remove the part of the project that was going to be on the eastern side of Beller Mountain near the draining into the Ashokan Reservoir. Unfortunately, that proposal did not reduce the number of buildings, and so the new project, which is on the 
uh, project proposal, which is on the western side of the mountain, still has two hotels, one of which would be blasted into the side of the mountain and go down seven stories. Um, only one golf course, um, which the is um, at the base of the mountain. And so it is smaller, but the local, most local groups of those who were looking at this compromise proposal didn't feel like it protected them enough, especially in terms of the uh, one of the hotels that would be blasted into the mountain that was higher up and in very poor soils. Some of the people living nearby had seen houses slide off the mountainside during heavy rains, and that was 20-plus years ago. So anticipating more climate change, anticipating increasing intensity of storms, the proposal just seemed to pose too much threat. And so the local groups, especially the... Could you name some of those local groups for us? Yes. The main group that's been leading the opposition in recent years is the Catskill Heritage Alliance, um, present in this from the beginning. Some of the other small groups have, have dropped out over time. But the Catskill Heritage Alliance has brought suit under the State Environmental Quality Review Act to say that the environmental review wasn't rigorous and didn't follow the laws of New York State. The Catskill Heritage Alliance also um, questioned the zoning, and that um, lawsuit um, resulted in a judgment from the judge saying that the buildings that the project proposed could be where they wanted to put them, but they couldn't be permanent structures in that location. So we didn't um, appeal that decision, even though it wasn't as strong as we wanted. It seemed a little protection on the zoning. And the uh, appeal on the environmental review is still pending. So this, this project has gone on for years now. How many years has it actually been on? Well, the first application was submitted in 2000, and it's now 2018. Um, so it's 18 years in terms of formal review. But an interesting aspect of this was seeing that the developer was actually in the community um, working to put people on various review boards and do various activities, um, actually try to obtain a water supply for the project, many years actually before that application went in. So it's over 20 years that the project has been in formation. The opposition formed most fully once the project was formally announced. That was in 1999. Does it look like uh, it's going to go through? Well, the Catskill Heritage Alliance hasn't been ex as successful in the courts as we would have liked. The courts have tended to defer to the agencies doing the review and say it's okay what they've done. We only have one further option for an appeal. If we don't um, obtain the right to appeal, then our legal challenges will be exhausted. The resort will then have to show what it can do. And in fact, um, it was granted permits under some of this review over a year ago, and so could have been doing something even during this time. We haven't seen that happening. Uh, we hope that the um, building out of this resort, if it does happen, would happen incrementally, and that we think it would have trouble 
supporting the full development that was originally proposed. But we didn't feel like it was safe to just trust that it would never be fully built out because there were plans on the table to build it out at a level that we, we felt would be harmful to the local community. Because if you build something that big and people do come to it, they wouldn't go to the local businesses. So we've supported a more organic type of growth with smaller businesses that we thought would be more sustainable, and we're seeing that in the region. Tourism has been up for five straight years, and the kinds of of things that people are doing, very creative in the arts as well as in outdoor recreation, and that's where the rail trails come in. Talk about the rail trail, because that's very interesting. I personally am a rail kind of guy, and I was sorry to see the rails uh, picked up. I thought they could uh, work a rail and a trail together, but it seems like they're taking up the rails and they're putting down a trail. Tell us uh, how far it's come along and how you feel about it, and tell us about some of the work you've done on it. Well, I had um, people in Shandaken, um, where I live, asking me to get them access to that rail corridor for 25 years back. And in trying to do that, um, I found that the railroad had a lease and they um, had the authority, they said, to keep people from using it, to keep their insurance costs down. And that never seemed right to me because many sections of the corridor, which runs from Kingston to High Mount east-west for about 38 miles, most of it had been unused for 40 or 50 years. So I um, started going to railroad advisory board meetings and trying to push for access. That was unsuccessful. And um, by early, by about 2005, the county was beginning to turn its attention to the corridor and ask questions about what was the best use. So they brought in a consultant at that time. And my original thought was like you just said, we would try to run a trail next to the railroad. And and if the railroad could then come to run better or more frequently, that would be fine. Unfortunately, this corridor is pretty narrow in places. It's a, what's called a single-track corridor, which means there's only one set of tracks. All of the successful rail trails across the country that are both a railroad and a trail are in double-track corridors, where there were originally two sets of tracks. You pull up one set of tracks, and that becomes the trail. But in this case... If you pull up the one set of tracks, then you don't have any tracks. Let me ask you about uh, the Ashokan Reservoir is such a pristine area, and uh, I have a rowboat out on the reservoir, and uh, we very rarely see litter uh, on the uh, property anywhere. Do you think the rail trail will promote people going into the reservoir property and uh, camping out and littering, or do, do you think that uh, people who use rail trails are uh, pretty clear about their environment and they carry it in and they carry it out? Well, I think the anglers who have been, and hunters who have been in the Ashokan uh, area have done a wonderful job. As you said, it, they, they've contributed to its being pristine. And it'll be hard for the rail trail community to live up to that standard. But yes, I think we do have a commitment. Um, the section of track that uh, has come up there is about 11 miles, a little over 11 miles, and it runs right along the reservoir, and it will be a beautiful trail. 
and I think that the beauty of the trail and our local volunteers will combine to keep it um, in a beautiful, pristine state. I'm committed to that, certainly. Well, if you're committed, I know it will be clean and tidy. Uh, Let let me just uh, regress here for a second and uh, go back to your Zen training. Um, When you moved up here, you uh, went to the Zen Mountain Monastery. And uh, can you tell us something about your experience there and how your Zen training has kind of merged with your general thought of environment and medicine and human nature? And how do you combine that all? When I first arrived at the monastery, I had no idea that there was a Zen monastery in the Catskills. That seemed astounding to me. Oh, you didn't come up here specifically for uh, the Zen monastery? I was doing bioethics work in Westchester County, and a call came to the Hastings Center where I was working, and they were looking for somebody to come to the uh, Zen monastery to talk about science and morality, which were the things that, you know, were right up my wheelhouse. So I... I said, a Zen monastery in the Catskills? And they said yes. And I was intrigued because I had been exposed to Zen a little bit in college and even in high school, but as part of philosophy or philosophy of religion. I uh, had no idea that anybody in the United States was actually practicing Zen. That seemed a, a Japanese uh, uh, endeavor. And when I arrived and found that Zen was a non-dogmatic exploration of one's personal spirituality and an exploration of questions like, who am I? What is my purpose? What is all this world about? I was um, immediately, immediately um, drawn and moved in to residence at the monastery within a year of the first time I came up here. Uh, that was a very successful uh, uh, monastery. They've put together quite a practice up there. Uh, they have a big sangha, a very dedicated group of people. Uh, it was started by uh, uh, Roshi uh, Lori, Daito Lori. And uh, it, it really is quite incredible that uh, it was an old building, an old uh, uh church building, I believe, was it? Uh, yes, the, the building has uh, since been put on the National Register of Historic Buildings. It was built by a Catholic priest, uh, Thomas Scully, back in the 1920s and 30s. An extraordinary design, beautiful, made with um, bluestone from the mountain and giant um, oak beams, also probably right from the mountain. Uh, a level of craftsmanship that's rarely seen any anymore. The building was used by Father Scully as the main house of a camp. He brought up uh, boys um, from New York City hoping to help them grow in body, mind, and spirit. And after a time that no longer was supporting itself and the monastery went through a couple of um, different kinds of incarnations, it became a, a uh, church camp, and when uh, John Daniel Lurie found it, it was starting to be in some disrepair because the that church was also having a little difficulty keeping it going. So he um, kind of took a big risk and decided he would try to start a Zen center there, initially a Zen art center, 
and arts and creativity and appreciation for the environment, all of that was built into the way John Dottie Lurie understood Zen teachings. And he did draw an amazing group of students. And the way that I came to the monastery, they were doing outreach, looking for people who offered something special to come and um, participate. Uh, and a, a few of us ended up staying. Well, now uh, let's let's talk about the uh, Ulster County uh, Legislature and how you're doing there. How the people, have they been receptive to your ideas? Have they been welcoming to you? And what do you think you can accomplish and what you have accomplished? I think that every legislator has um, been welcoming to me as an individual and I appreciate the working relationships. Different people have different attitudes and beliefs about what should happen in government, and there are 22, 23 legislators for um, Ulster County, 22 other than myself. To pass something, we need a majority of those. Um, to really feel good about something, I'd like to have nearly everyone. Um, I, I came to run to for office because I was doing work in the community and feeling like I was running up against uh, resistance to some of the environmental work that I wanted to do and also the issues about where we were going with economic development. I wanted to emphasize the arts and outdoor recreation. There's a public health aspect of that that I didn't mention before, but um, as a pediatrician, I know that if I can build trails and get people out and active, that their health is going to be better, their life is going to be better. So I am trying to bring everything together in that work, uh, and it's challenging, uh, but I enjoy it. Have you found uh, the rest of the legislature open to your ideas? Have they been welcoming? I think welcoming is applied to the person, and so we have a collegiality in working, but there is a great diversity of ideas, and my ideas are sometimes um, going to win the day, and sometimes they're not. I think that part of what we need to do when we work with each other in that kind of setting is expect that the other person's perspective is going to be um, an education. It's going to be a source of new information rather than expect that the other person is going to agree. Uh, I, I'm delighted when other people agree with me, of course. But I think if, it, you know, those of us who come into this with an expectation that the other person will agree, that's going to be disappointing and frustrating. And I've seen that in some of my colleagues. Well, you know, uh, when I uh, decided to do this podcast, uh, I was thinking about empowerment. And uh, I want to ask you, uh, for the audience that's listening to our podcast, what do you do? How do you muster up whatever energy you need to to get beyond the problems that you encounter? Because there are so many issues that have to uh, be taken taken up with uh, the Bel Air project or the rail trail or dealing at the legislator. What actually empowers you to put that power forward? 
How do you actually manifest that, that power to get through the rough spots? I don't know where the energy comes from. Um, I uh, have been very energetic since being a young child, and my mother always told me, you've got a lot of energy, so you've got to learn to use it for good. What I think that has happened as I've um, gone through my life, and especially um, during the period of my Zen training, is stop wasting time and energy on the parts that I can't control, which is nearly everything. So I, I bring to something what I can offer, and I, I, I guess I want not to be stopped by and um, beaten down by something not going my way. And then if I don't invest energy in being defeated, I have more energy to move forward. Do you have any uh, points that you'd like to make since you have the microphone in front of you? Would you like to reach out and say anything to the people of the Hudson Valley, anything that we could all participate in? I know you have some uh, thoughts about uh, voting and uh, about elections, and uh, maybe you'd like to uh, speak about that. Yes, well, we, should, uh, we have a, a number of very important elections coming up, and I believe that we should have voting, actual people power, determining what happens in our elections, not money. And part of that is being careful with our election laws and making sure that we have good voting machines, then we have clean elections. But a bigger part of that is simply having more people vote. I, I believe voting and people are more important than money. How do we get the people to get out of their homes and actually go out and vote? Do you have any suggestions on that? I think we have to talk to each other. Um, one of the ways that candidates um, encourage people to vote is by contacting them. And we can do that by contacting our neighbors as well, even if we're not running for office. So I think that's a large part of it. I also think that elected officials have to produce, have to come through. Uh, I care about the environment. We're looking at, in Ulster County, passing a law to uh, require people to bring their own bag when they go to the grocery store and other areas where they would previously have been given a, a thin plastic bag that hangs from the trees or clogs up the waste facility or ends up in the ocean uh, or in our food. I feel good when we're able to do that kind of action. And I think we need to do a lot of work to educate and encourage the excitement that comes from knowing there's a problem and then taking an effective answer. You think, the young, you think young people today really aren't connected uh, to politics or they're not in – I noticed in, in Europe, uh, most kids, if you ask who their politicians are, they know every one of them. They know four mm -hmm. or five languages and uh, they kind of have a world view. Uh, do you think that we're lacking in, in, on some of these issues in the United States? I, I'd like to see a lot more public engagement, and I think we're seeing that. Unfortunately, it seems like we've had to – we've required crisis in order to generate that in our young people. And I, I think we're not leaving the world to our children in a better shape than we um, – than it came to us. But young people are stepping forward on every issue of the day, 
and that is that is great, and I am very encouraged uh, by that. We we welcome that both in terms of what they're bringing to us, but just that this also gives us a connection with what's going forward so that we take our responsibilities seriously. Do you think the Hudson Valley is uh, raising uh, children who are cut it to above the norm because of the great environment that we live in? Do you, or do you just feel uh, that America is uh, uh, going forward with education and uh, teaching our children how to think? I, I think there's, a, you know, I do. I I am a big believer in public education, but I I think that. Uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic are good, but we need to really open children's eyes to the greater vision uh, of where we live and how to take care of our environment, how to read labels, how to uh, be conscious of uh, each and everything we do. Every time we turn on a light switch and flush a toilet, we're actually wasting energy. So uh, I feel that uh, sometimes in public education we could uh, maybe uh, go into these issues a little more in depth. Yeah, I think both private education and public education, we have become focused on providing answers to tests and giving less attention to how does a person think about things and how, how do we spend our time. We call it spending, right? How do we invest our time? I think that when we um, see our world narrowing down to either a screen, you know, a device, or to one type of idea, um, you mentioned languages, one language, um, that we're letting our world become narrowed. And uh, I think I do think that it is an important role for educators to expand and for parents to do what they have been doing in in New York State recently, fight back if that curriculum becomes the goal instead of education being the goal. And I mean education in the sense of learning how to live a full and rich life. And rich there means um, deep and engaged not necessarily rich in a monetary sense. You know, there's one other topic that we didn't uh, cover, and I know you've had a lot of success with fracking, and I would like to ask you uh, your opinion on fracking and how you've helped our society with the fracking. One of the things I feel most uh, proud of in my life is the work that I did uh, here in New York State on fracking, and it was one of those situations where the skills that that I have developed and worked on in my life just seemed to be the ones that were needed. So I started working with a group of people that were concerned about the health impacts of fracking. And I looked at it and I thought, well, maybe there's a way to do this activity safely. It basically involves f- fracturing the earth um, deep underground with explosives to try to extract oil and gas. And I, you know, uh, engineering and technology are good things, and so let's figure out how to do it. But I quickly found that each step of this process has um, elements that make it very difficult, and I came to believe impossible to do safely. And there was very little information at that time 
that was being used to base decisions. It was basically the industry going forward and trying to recover more oil and gas as it had become more difficult. And a few people out west were saying they were being made sick by it. And we started looking into that, and a group of people started having a weekly call where we were talking about it, and we started seeing that there were newspaper reports of explosions or wells being contaminated. And during these conversations, we said, well, how are we going to convince people, you know, of what's going on here? And I and others said, well, you know, we see this this reporting in these journals and in these newspapers, and we're seeing some now some scientific studies come out. The decision makers aren't seeing this. So we started sending them these articles um, and decided we'd send them weekly if we were getting them weekly, and we were. And more and more information started coming out. So we put it together into a uh, bound journal called the Compendium, just compiling all this information and presented that to leaders in the Department of Health and Department of Environment in New York State. The groups also reached out to faith communities, to businesses, to artists, celebrities, and basically said, this, this is a danger that if it happens in New York State, it could ruin our water forever and, and our air as well. And we had um, a governor that was willing to listen to that with um, staff people that were willing to listen. We knew that we would need to have the public really bring a strong voice, and the public did. Um, by the time that a decision was made not to issue permits for fracking in New York State, 60% of the people in the state uh, opposed it. And any good politician is going to have to look at 60% of an entire state being opposed to an activity. And that combination of factors, New York State became the first state in the country with actual shale gas reserves to ban fracking. And we now have a couple of other places that have come that way, and we're hoping that the Delaware River Basin will soon also ban fracking. Well, Kathy Nolan, you have done so many good things for Ulster County and the world. We can only hope that you will continue to fight for us, for our environment, and for our safety. And I just thank you for joining me on my first podcast. It's my great pleasure. Good luck to you. Thank you so much.